The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Today's passage comes from Luke chapter 19, verse 28, through chapter 20, verse 18. Um, I will be reading 19, 28 through 48, but Jonathan will be preaching through verse 2018. So if you would, please stand with me as I read God's word. Luke 19, starting in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has, has ever yet sat. And tie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is the word of God. I just want to continue reading from there. I asked Don to do that, but if you'll just keep your Bible open, these are the verses out of chapter 20. Continuing from there, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up to him and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. Jesus answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people are going to stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from, and Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And so he began to tell the people this parable, a man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, this one also, they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir, let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. 
When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is God's word. Chance, thank you for getting up and just saying what you said, brother. My hope is that you as a Jesus family are praying for him and praying for our church. Continue to do that. Just know it's a couple of weeks away when we'll be inviting uh, Jesus, uh, the family members of Delta Church to come and linger after the service to have a time where we will trust that God will speak clearly as we we vote on him um, coming in as an elder or not. Uh, also, I just want to say this to you. I, I know I don't say it enough, but I love you so dearly. I'm so thankful to be just a sheep among the fold of this flock known as Delta Church. I just wanted you to hear that I was just because I was overwhelmed with that truth as we were sitting here praying and just my ears could hear the din of voices just praying for one another, and it reminded me of how much I need my Jesus family, and how much you encourage me, how much I need to hear you leaning on Jesus out loud, because it encourages me to keep leaning on Jesus, and I just want you to hear that from my voice. I don't want to just assume it. Um, Last thing before we get started is this, for the little ones today, you're going to hear me talk about the big treasures and the little treasures. Yes, if you remember all these things, here is my challenge to you, little ones that are sitting here today. I want you to try to find the big treasure today. I want to see if you can write a big treasure, and then here's the challenge. I want you to come find me after the service, and I want you to open up your little journal, and I want you to show it to me, all right? So after you find the big treasure, here's your seek, seek and destroy mission. I want you to come and bombard me with all the treasures that you found today, and I want you to show them to me, okay? So sermon title is this, The Savior's Arrival. We are to the point now where we are staring down the barrel of the last week of Jesus' life. And Jesus, the Savior, is arriving in Jerusalem. The main idea is this, that despite his rejection by many, Jesus is God's promised king. People are going to reject Jesus. But despite this rejection, Jesus is God's promised king. The rejection by many doesn't disprove that Jesus is God's promised king. He remains king whether we receive or reject him. So we're going to see this today, and we're going to see the kindness of our Savior. There's a song by City of Light, if you guys listen to that band called Jesus Strong and Kind. Beautiful song. And you see this very, very much to be true in our scripture today. Jesus is the strong one. He's the king. But Jesus is oh so kind. And we're going to see this on display this morning. And my hope is that the Spirit through me would lead you to see Jesus clearly today. I recently heard this as it relates to the preaching event where we come and we submit ourselves to the Word of God that the aim of the preacher, as it were, is to come and to take the hand of Jesus and to take your hand and to put Jesus' hand into your hand so that you can see how strong and how kind and how good Jesus actually is. In and of myself, I can't do that. But empowered by the Holy Spirit, I can. And so that's why every single Sunday I say something like this, apparently to the point to where people make fun of me now because I always say this, let's pause and let's pray. And people know that that's sort of my my cue that we're going to pray. So let's pause and let's pray. And let's ask for the Holy Spirit to do that. My operating assumption right now is this. For the past six days and 22 hours, you had many voices speaking many messages to you. And right now, you're lending your ear to me as I attempt to put Jesus' hand into your hand for 40, 45 minutes. And if 45 minutes is going to trump six days and 22 hours of messages, it's going to be an act of God. It's going to be a miracle of God. That's the, the beauty of the authority of the preaching of God's Word. It can happen. 
And so I'm just going to pray that for you, and however you need to pray that for yourself, I'm asking that you do that right now. Don't be a spectator. Be a participant. Join your Jesus family praying for these things so that we can see how truly strong and kind Jesus is. Yes? All right. Let's do that right now. Jesus, you've heard my heart, and I'm just assuming there's others here this morning who would say, yeah, that, that, makes, a, <laughs> that makes a whole lot of sense to me. And my assumption is that some of my Jesus family here this morning are praying something maybe along these lines. Jesus, I have been tempted and tried this past week, and maybe we've succeeded, and maybe we have failed in our pursuit of you, but here we are this morning. And maybe the one truth that's ringing clear in our hearts and minds is, wow, man, I, I need Jesus, and I need him a lot. I need strong Jesus. I need kind Jesus. I need Savior Jesus. I need truth-speaking Jesus. I need King Jesus. I need the authority of Jesus. So Lord, I just put in my mouth and maybe the mouths of those, my brothers and sisters here this morning, the words of the prophet Samuel when he was wrestling with his call when God was speaking. I think it's Eli who said, listen, the next time you hear God speak, this is what you need to say. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And so, Lord, on behalf of your people, I put into our collective mouth that phrase, speak, Lord, from your word today. Speak, Lord. Why? Because your servants are listening. Would you bring in a holy hush? Would you bring in a measure of awe as we get to listen and watch Jesus do what the strong and kind King loves to do, which is call people to himself, the Son of Man, who seeks and saves the lost. Jesus, help me to put your hand into the hands of your people and to put the people's hands into your hands so that they may see you clearly. It's in your name, King Jesus, that I pray these things. Amen. If you saw some of the videos that I posted this past week on Slack, I was just trying to uh, prime the pump, so to speak, for where we are today as we enter into verse 28. Just as a side note, what you need to know is that the chapter numbers and verses, those sorts of things, those like weren't handed down from above by God. Sometimes they can be a little misleading in the sense of like we're right, literally like right smack dab in the middle of chapter 19. But what you need to know is that with our entry into verse 28 in particular of chapter 19, this is the beginning of Luke's third main movement. You would have seen me attempt to explain what I mean by that in those videos, but what you need to know is that ever since Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus has had his face set to Jerusalem. He's going there. He's going to die. He's going to be buried, but he is going to rise again. And when you come to verse 28, Luke signals for us, he's here. <laughs> he's arrived. He's in Jerusalem. His ministry three years has had basically a goal in mind a destination an act to come and accomplish the salvation that we need if you remember right before jesus says and luke tells us that he set his face to go to jerusalem during that mount of transfiguration event while up on the mount with some of the disciples moses and elijah appeared to him and if you remember in that event, Moses and Elijah in glory before Jesus begin to speak of his departure. And if you remember, that word departure is actually in the original language the word exodus. It's a direct link back to the book of Exodus where like the overarching theme of the book of Exodus is God's people are in a bind, they're in bondage to slavery, and they need a Savior, redemption, to come and purchase them out of slavery so that they can know the freedom that is found in God the Savior. Like that is the book of Exodus in a nutshell. And they say that whole thing is pointing to you, Jesus, and you're going up to Jerusalem and you're going to get it done. 
And so then he sets his face to go to Jerusalem to accomplish that very thing. And now here we are, we're in Jerusalem. His face is set and he has arrived. And the salvation now that has been anticipated over years and years and written about all through the Old Testament, the prophets, the teachings, the law, pointing to the Savior like a funnel. It's funneling, 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 funneling down to this moment where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. In these verses before us, we're going to see triumph, we're going to see tragedy, and we're going to see a verdict. We're going to see the triumph of King Jesus as he receives the messianic praise that he is worthy to receive. If you're sort of newer to church or it's been a while since you've thought about that word Messiah, that's what I mean by messianic praise, the praise the Messiah is worthy to receive. That word Messiah is a title. It's a Hebrew word that just means anointed one or the one set apart. So if you go and read the Old Testament, out of the mouth of the prophets, the teaching, there is this constant drumbeat of there's coming a day when this one, this better King David, this better prophet, the perfect priest is going to show up and get the job of salvation done and accomplished for all time. And this messianic praise is going to to be given to Jesus as he rides into Jerusalem. Now we're going to see that it's a little off. The people are, are rightly praising Jesus, but their expectation of that looks like it's a little tweaked. It's not quite right, and we'll see that unfold over the weeks to come. But what we're going to see also is that right on the heels of the triumph of the praise that Jesus is worthy to receive, we're going to see the tragedy of folks going, I see Jesus, I know what is going on, but I still reject him outright. And then we're going to seize this shocking verdict of God's just judgment for those who reject Jesus. What you just need to know is with this entry into chapter 19, verse 28, Dr. Luke, we learn in Colossians that he was a physician, is writing with a doctor's precision, and he's pulling no punches. He is providing us the necessary evidence so that you and I may have certainty that Jesus is the one who the Bible says He is and that we can have the certainty that the events that unfolded in that last week of the life of Jesus actually did accomplish the salvation that sinners need to be accomplished on their behalf. Listen, we live in a world that invites us to see Jesus, if you think about it. But the world invites us to see Jesus as a liar, a blowhard, someone who just spoke a lot of words, couldn't get the job done. The world invites us to see Jesus as a lunatic, nut job, wingnut, out of his mind. Who goes around saying that they are God in the flesh after all? But Luke enters in and says, there might be a third option according to C.S. Lewis. And it might be that he's actually saying the things that he's saying because he is the Lord of salvation that he is claiming to be. And Luke is basically saying, don't take my word for it. I've been talking to you for 19 and a half chapters. Maybe it's time to consider the last week of his life and see if the things that took place in the last week of his life actually did accomplish what Jesus said he came to accomplish. So, with that as the background, Luke rolls right into verse 28 of chapter 19. He kicks off his third and last section of his gospel with the triumph of the king rolling into Jerusalem. And we see this as little treasure number one, that Jesus is the promised king who brings peace with God. Jesus is the king, and he is the king who brings peace with God. He makes peace with God available. What you need to know is that the arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem, it is just pure and absolute triumph. Triumphant language just permeates these verses 28 through 40. But if you also notice, this whole scene is also one where King Jesus is in absolute control of the situation. You see how his sovereignty over all things is at play, similar to the kind of song we're singing. He is sovereign over us, and you see a glimpse of that sovereignty in the way he is orchestrating events to kick off his entry, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The king of kings is entering this city to the rightful praise of the people. 
And so with complete command of the situation, Jesus sent two of the disciples, Luke tells us, saying to these disciples, hey, listen, you need to go into the village in front of you, where on entering you're going to find something, you're going to find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. You need to untie it, you need to bring it here, and if anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it, but notice in verse 32, Luke then tells us, so those who were sent went away, and guess what? They found it just as he had told them. Notice that Jesus doesn't come riding into Jerusalem on a war horse. He isn't there because he's got a sword in his hand, shield in his fist, war horse, or taking the city down. Well, there is coming a day when that is going to happen, according to the book of Revelation, and it's a day that is going to freak us all out. But at the first coming, Jesus enters into his city on a donkey colt. For a king to ride a donkey colt, this wasn't uncommon, this wasn't unheard of. If you ride in on a war horse, you're saying something, I'm here to bring war. If a king were to ride into a city on a donkey colt, he's saying something, I'm here to represent peace. I'm bringing peace to you. So for a king to ride in on this donkey colt, what he's saying is, I come bringing peace. I'm not bringing war. So in ordering these events, just notice this, that Jesus was deliberately filling the Old Testament prophecy of the prophet Zechariah. If you go into his book, Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, what you discover is that the prophet carried along by the Holy Spirit with this eye forward to this coming king, says this, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. So he's speaking to God's people. He's speaking to the city, so to speak, Jerusalem. Behold, notice this language here, your king is coming to you, a king who is righteous, a king having salvation. He will be humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so when you sit back and ask yourself, what is Zechariah saying? What, you're, what we see is this, that with this king who's coming, bringing salvation on a donkey, he is doing something very particular. Zechariah is foreseeing that this anointed one, this messianic king, this king in the lineage of King David, this better King David, when he comes, he's going to come and he's going to bring peace. He's going to be a king who is peace himself. Thus, as Jesus rides on the donkey into Jerusalem, he is making it crystal clear that he is Zechariah's long-promised king. That's what he's doing right now. He is the one who will make it possible for sinners to have peace with God. And notice that no one is confused about this, at least in the crowd. And no one is confused about it if you think about it on the religious level. Side. Everyone understands the claim that is being made by Jesus when he comes rolling into Jerusalem at the height of Passover, a exodus redemption event on the foal of a donkey, Zechariah 9 ringing in the ears of people. Luke tells us in verse 37 that the whole multitude of his disciples understood exactly what was going on because they began to rejoice and they began to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. They're stitching it all together and the dominoes have been, been knocked forward and they're starting to fall. Man, he's been doing this. He's been saying this. He's been showing all these signs. Here he is, Jerusalem, Passover, Exodus event, Zechariah. It's happening. It's here. It's right in front of us right now. And so the crowd let, lets rip with Psalm 118, an overly messianic psalm, a psalm talking about the Messiah to come. And the words of the crowd begin to shout phrases from Psalm 118, and the point is their application of Psalm 118 to Jesus just couldn't be more true. It is absolutely truth applied to Jesus. Because if you go back to Psalm 118, Psalm 118 celebrates a victorious king in the line of David. And the cry of the crowd is rightly applying the praise of that psalm to King David's long-promised great king. 
If you just remember, it was only two weeks ago when I preached last that, do you remember blind Bartimaeus on the Jericho Road? What was his shout as Jesus of Nazareth was going by? What was it? Son of what? Son of David. So Bartimaeus sees it. Luke is helping us to see it. They see rightly that the son of David is here and all of the mighty works they have seen has them in the, in the right frame of mind. Now, remember the Pharisees characteristically are like, ah, you need to stop this, teacher. You need to rebuke this. This is all wrong. But Jesus says, listen, I tell you, if these crowds were silent, the very stones would cry out. And just what, what's going on here is this. Yes, we're going to learn their, their praise is a little misapplied, but it is right. It's not wrong to give the king of kings the praise he's worthy to receive. So when you see these first verses, 28 through 40, what you just need to know is that this is the triumph of the king. This is the triumph of the kind of king that you and I need. This whole scene begs us to come and give our rightful worship to Christ the king. It's inviting us to come and see that the triumphal entry is the invitation for us to sort of put our face as a picture in the crowd and to see that you and I, if we were standing there and we have witnessed all the mighty works that Jesus has done, that we too would be there shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're stitching together that the peace from heaven, the peace we need with heaven, the peace we need with God, it's here. It's come to us. It's very similar if you go all the way back to the Christmas story. What are the angels saying? Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth. So peace has come to earth because the peace of heaven is come. They're just putting it all together, and it's right to go, man, if I was there, would I be praising them? And I think the implication from Luke is, that, yeah, you probably would, and it would be right for you to do so. And the triumphal entry of Jesus for you and me today, because many of you are going, man, this is like Springfield 2024. This isn't Jerusalem early first century. So what's the, what's the carryover for you and me? And I think it's just this, that to see the triumphal entry in the rightful praise that is being given to Jesus, it's designed by Luke to give us this pause and to ponder, do I trust Jesus as this king? Do I see him as the king that he says he is? Am I giving him the praise he's worthy to receive? Do I have this kind of peace with God that is given and made possible by the king? That's the question I think we are called to to wrestle with. But notice how immediately on the heels of triumph, triumph gives way to immediate tragedy. And that's little treasure number two. Tragedy as people reject King Jesus. Now, what you need to know is that as Luke begins to go forward, this chunk of chapter 19, verses 41, all the way down into chapter 20, verse 8, there's three distinct pictures. And I think what Luke is doing is he's giving us three pictures of how people reject Jesus. So, right on the heels of triumph, You see the tragedy of people who know full well what's going on, yet still look at Jesus and go, I don't want them. Don't want anything to do with them. And that's a tragedy. The following three pictures of rejection where Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because of the kind of rejection there, the way he comes and cleanses the temple, but the way the people react is a tragedy of rejection in the way that people challenge Jesus by asking him, what authority do you have to show up and do this kind of stuff? It's a measure of tragedy because, it again, it is further rejection. And I think Luke stitches these three pictures of rejection right on the heels of such praise because it's meant to sort of slap you in the face and to nudge you forward into the edge of your seat as you hear the kind of reaction that many people gave to the triumph of the king. It's a way for, for Luke to say, listen, I know you might be a quarter, a quarter awake right now, but like wake fully up. Scoot to the edge of your seat. 
Luke is forcing this triumph tragedy contrast for a very specific reason. He's doing so to shock us into seeing how serious and how ruinous it is to reject the Son of Man who came to seek and to save the lost. So just think about all that has been revealed about Jesus over the last 19 and a half chapters. We're 19 and a half chapters deep into a book that has 24 chapters. We've had a lot of content laid before us, yet the plain truth is that despite all of this, all of these signs, all of these wonders, all of these teachings, all of these insights, all of these explanations as to who Jesus is, people will still choose to reject God's triumphant king, and they do so for just all sorts of reasons. I think the text gives us at least two, two reasons why people will still reject Jesus. And the first is this, is that people will reject King Jesus because they settle for false peace. They will put their hope for peace in something that cannot actually bring them the kind of peace they're longing for. And so what they do, though, is they see Jesus, they see his claims, they are able to understand what it means to follow Jesus as the prince of peace. And they go, man, like, I don't want that kind of peace, but I do want peace. And so then what they do is we go fishing for it in all sorts of places, hoping that this thing can bring peace. Money can bring peace. Control can bring peace. A house can bring peace. Sex can bring peace. Money can bring peace. Relationships can bring peace. Hoping that these temporary Offerings of peace will somehow be able to scratch the design of our hearts that are only made to be received in the eternal peace that King Jesus can give to us. People reject King Jesus because they settle for false peace all the time. This tragedy leads Jesus to weep. Verse 41, I what's going on as he is now drawing near to the city, Luke says. He's weeping over the city. The idea is this. I, I know it might be hard to see, but like if this is Jerusalem, Jerusalem is called Mount Zion for a reason because Jerusalem is like popped up on top of a mountain in that area. And then what you have is the Kidron Valley that goes down. Then you have the Mount of Olives up on this side. Jericho's over here. So Jesus has been coming from the east, working his way west. He's up on the peak of the Mount of Olives. He's beginning to make his way into Jerusalem. Jerusalem, people are going nuts. They're singing Psalm 18. And the idea is as he crests the Mount of Olives, he's peering over the Kidron Valley and he's looking upon Jerusalem, the city, the people, the place, the temple that would have been shining like a spike of silver for all of its ornamentation in the, not, in the, in the daytime sky. He begins to weep. His heart breaks. Because he knows that those people in that city are settling for a temporary peace. He drew near and he saw the city and he wept for it. And he said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. See, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey as a sign of peace, fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy that he is the king who can give sinners the peace with God they need. But as we all know, it is one thing to acknowledge with our words, okay, I'll give credence, mental assent to this idea that Jesus is a king of peace, but all of us know that it's another thing entirely to entrust ourselves and to truly entrust our daily lives to this king of peace. It's the difference between knowing and then actually casting yourself onto what you know. Every single one of us as believers and unbelievers alike know that tension, yeah? <laughs> or is it just me this past week that was struggling with those things? It is alarming at how quickly we seek to satisfy our hearts and minds with self-manufactured temporary peace. If you don't believe me, go ask the pastor for counseling. My hunch is, brother, that you could get up and say most of the things that I counsel is because someone is trying to satisfy their heart and mind with self-manufactured temporary peace, and it's proving to be the false foundation that it is. It's alarming at how easily you, me, anyone can reject 
Jesus for that temporary peace. And so I'm saying all this because if you remember, you only have to go back to like last week when Pastor Aaron was here preaching. If you just remember the beginning of the parable that he preached said this, Luke gives us a little narrative note. He says, as they heard these things, as the crowd heard these things from Jesus, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was coming. So what you know is the mindset of the people is the king is here. He's going into Jerusalem. Yes, now we're finally going to get the peace that we want. Peace from Rome, peace in our time, peace because the king is going to come and hopefully he's like Solomon bringing in silver and gold everywhere. My comfort, my lifestyle, the ease at which I want life. I'm going to get out from underneath this temporary rule. He's going to come and bring me the peace. But when Jesus says, listen guys, you got to know the days are coming. Your enemies will set up barricades around you and surround you and hem you in and tear this place down. What he's saying is that you're casting your desire, right desire, God-given desire for peace far too short. You're selling yourself short because you're hoping that Jerusalem and its upbuilding will be the thing that brings you peace. But what you need to know is it's not very many years from now. All this thing's going to be torn down, and then what? And many of you can get up here right now. You can come and grab this microphone, and you can take the mic and say, okay, I wasn't setting my hope on a building in a temple in Jerusalem, but man, I cast myself on the peace of a relationship. And I tried to build my life on that foundation, and it crashed, and it tumbled. I was trying to cast my life on this hope of, man, I'm just going to have good health, and if I work out, and I do the thing, and I eat the right food, and I avoid sugar, and I do the thing, the next thing you know, the doctor's going, uh, your blood report shows you've got a disease. And your foundation for peace just gets washed out. You may not be casting your hope on the temporary peace of a Roman overthrow kingdom in Jerusalem. But all of us know how easy it is to build up foundations for temporary peace. And so there comes that tension. All right, what am I going to do? Jesus comes to me and says, Jonathan, you need to deny yourself. Jonathan, you need to die to self. Jonathan, you need to follow me. That is the path of peace. And then my heart goes, yeah, but can I get all of that with the not Jesus stuff? Anyone else feel that tension in everyday life? And you know as well as I do, some people will go, uh, thank you, no Jesus. Thank you very much, no. I, I think I'm going to be the one who can buck the trend and find the peace that will scratch the eternal peace itching in my soul, in you, not you. I know everyone else tried it, and they're going to stumble and fumble and fall and fail, but I'm going to be the one who ain't, it ain't going to happen to. And so people reject Jesus for the second reason. And this is really this whole temple cleansing, and then the people are like, what authority? That all these verses I'm stitching together. Another reason I think you see that people reject Jesus is this. People reject, will reject King Jesus because they just do not want to submit to his authority. They just don't want to submit to his authority. So in verse 45, we see Jesus' authority when he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, hey, listen, y'all, it's written, and I know you know that I'm quoting Isaiah chapter 56 right now, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. What you need to know is that when Jesus says it is written, he is quoting the Bible, the Bible that these in the crowd would know. And when Jesus uses that Isaiah quote, it sort of has this dual sense when he is saying, listen, y'all, my house. And like he's, he's pointing to the temple. It's at the temple, right? He says there he entered the temple. So he's sitting in the temple. People know this is the place of worship where Yahweh, the living God, triune God, receives the right worship he's worthy to re receive. And Jesus says, you all need to know this, my house there's this dual sense in which he is saying, this is my house because the Father is mine and I am his. So his house is my house, and there's also this sort of like backdoor idea of like he's saying like, yeah, but like the kind of praise you're giving to God, it should be given to me because this is also my emphasis on my house. And so Jesus is using this language, and to us we're like, yeah, okay, I guess. It just seems like no big deal, but what Jesus is saying here is an extremely big deal because what Jesus is saying and doing in the temple would be the equivalent of if Brady Reader says, I think I'm going to make a little trip to Washington, D.C. today. 
and I'm going to roll right up to the White House. I'm going to kick my boot through the door. I am going to roll into the Oval Office, and I'm going to take my hands, and I'm going to sweep the whole thing off, and I'm going to say, everyone get out. This is my house. Now, you do that, one, if you want to go to jail. Two, you do that if you actually have the authority to show up and do that. If you don't have the authority to show up and say, the White House is my house, you don't go there. Jesus is showing up and cleansing the temple because that house is his house. And he knows this is his house. Meaning the worship and the praise that is given there in that place is rightly applied to him. And that's exactly what's going on with Jesus when he cleanses the temple. It's a picture of his authority. You see the triumphal, listen, the triumphal entry is Jesus arriving as king. So when Jesus rolls into Jerusalem, he rolls in as king. But there's a lot of people who show up and say, you know what, I think I really should be in charge around here. And then they start to talk and you go, no, actually you shouldn't be in charge around here. Someone shows up and says, I think I need to be the one with authority leading the thing. And then they begin to lead and you realize we're not giving you any authority over our lives because you're proving how inept you are to lead with authority. Jesus shows up in Jerusalem as king, arrives as king, but when Jesus goes into my house, the temple, and cleanses it, it is Jesus acting as king, and there lies the rub. In our lives as believers, and even in the lives of unbelievers that you might know, many are willing to go, man, Jesus is king, cool, ain't no thing. Willing to give mental assent to that sort of his, maybe historic biblical fact. But it's when Jesus shows up and says, because I am king, I'm going to start acting like king in your life. <laughs> then we start to get a little squirmish, a little squeamish, a little wiggly in the chair. Because Jesus begins to say things like this, for me to be your king, that means that I have authority over your relationships. I have authority over your thought life. I have authority over your word life. I have authority over your behavior life. I have authority over where you should go and where you shouldn't go. I have authority to tell you that it is right for you to die to self. I have authority to tell you to pick up your cross and follow me. I have authority to tell you to deny yourself. And each time the king acts like king in our life, it rubs against us in weird ways. Why? Because we like to be the king of our lives. So much of the trouble comes down to one of Tom's friends. I remember he says a lot of life can be summed up like this. The decisions we make is, is king me on the throne or is king Jesus on the throne? <laughs> king me likes to believe I'm the one who has the right to rule and reign over my life with all the authority that Jonathan Davis can muster. Like I'm talking about me right now. If you're like, that sort of sounds familiar to me, may the Lord bless and keep you. I'm just talking about John Davis right now. This is cheaper than me going to counseling session with Brady is to do this in front of you guys right now. King me loves to rule over the life of Jonathan. Then King Jesus shows up and is like, tap, tap, tap. Hey, you know that thought wasn't really you submitting to me. That thought, that word, that action, that, 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 that was, was not you submitting to me. And what we know to be true is this. There comes a point in time when someone says, man, when, the when I, I just keep bumping into the authority of the king. Now, this is good authority. It's right authority. It's beautiful authority. It's kind authority. It's loving authority. It's merciful authority. It's gracious authority. But we just keep wanting to try to shirk out from underneath it. Why? Because I like to do me. I want to do me. I want to do what I want to do. And Jesus comes teaching and he comes preaching and he comes clearing it out and says, I'm not here just to be king and then be sat off in the corner like I'm some trophy on a shelf. If I am king, that means I'm going to be king in your life. And what we do is we want to get out from underneath that authority so we could just go do what we want to do because we want the comfort that we think we can bring. We want the peace that we think we can manufacture in our own lives. 
The temple cleansing is Jesus acting as king, and when someone with real authority shows up in your life, it is challenging to the max because their real authority shines like a light exposing all the areas in your life, my life, where we seek to live under our own authority. Now, all we have to do is look at verse 47 and ask the chief priests, the scribes, and the principal men of the people because here's what they thought of the real authority of King Jesus. Their response was, uh, we need to kill this man. That's my response to his authority. Now, you couple that authority of Jesus in the temple, you couple it with his authority, teaching and preaching the gospel, and it's no surprise that the rulers come asking Jesus in chapter 20, verse 2, Jesus, thank you very much for doing all the things you've been doing for the past 19 and a half chapters, but you need to answer this question. Tell us by what authority you do these things. Who is it that gave you this authority? Now, We have been Christianized long enough to where we hear that from the mouth of the Pharisees and our immediate temptation to go, ooh, boo, you know, the Pharisees. We've been conditioned to think and believe that everything that comes out of the Pharisees' mouth is this, bad. But that's actually a brilliant question they're asking, isn't it? When Jesus showed up in your life and you started to feel the tug and the pull of Jesus in your life and you started wrestling with it, whether it was in college or whether it was in the home, maybe it was your mom and dad sharing the gospel, maybe it was your neighbor, and you started to bump up against the authority of Jesus, my hunch is you did what most people do when they bump in the authority and King me begins to go, maybe I shouldn't be in charge and maybe King Jesus needs to be in charge. All of us at some point in time, secular and sacred, go, by what right do you have to even challenge my authority? authority right now. Yes? Don't we do that? What right do you have to tell me to do this? What authority are you exercising to tell me I need to die to self, deny self, and to follow you? What gives you the right, Jesus? It is a beautiful question, and it's actually a brilliant question. It's something we ask all the time, but Jesus knows this question is designed to put him in a bind. Jesus knows, listen, for some of us, We ask this question of Jesus. We ask the question in our movement from unbelief to belief. Some of us still ask this question right now as believers, but there's a measure in this. There's a right way to ask the question and a wrong way. The right way is this. I'm a follower of Jesus. Jesus, your Savior. Jesus, your Lord. Jesus, your King. And the question on our lips might be born out of faith-seeking understanding. I truly believe. Jesus, you're King on the throne. But like, I mean, I'm just trying to grow. It's truly you trying to understand as you learn what it looks like to continue to submit to Jesus. But all of us know there is a way to ask that question where it is not faith-seeking understanding. There's a way to ask that question that is this you're digging in your heels and you will refuse to bend to the king. Same question, born out of a different heart. And Jesus knows that this question is designed to try to catch him out. This isn't faith-seeking understanding. Thus, the well-timed counter-question from Jesus, a question designed by him to expose the heart of these men, namely that their question is born from a heart that refuses to submit to his authority. And I say this because if you just look over in verse 7, you see at the end of that exchange there, what do they, what do, they do? They ask Jesus a question. Jesus says, let me ask you a question. And then they say, uh, you know, if we say from heaven, he's going to say, well, how come you're not believing it? If we say from man, then we're probably going to die because everyone actually believes the right answer. But we don't want to give the right answer and we don't want to give the wrong answer. Verse 7, so they answered that they did not know. I don't know where this came from. And what's going on there in verse 7 is that these religious leaders go so far as to look like fools, something that they do not want to look like in front of the eyes of people, but they go so far as to look like fools by not answering the question to avoid acknowledging the authority of Jesus. I think something we can learn is this. They choose the path of agnosticism. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. But here's the thing. They did know. They did know. For many, for some, for you perhaps, it's not so much a knowledge issue. It wasn't a knowledge issue here. But it was truly a bending of the will to the authority of the king issue. 
And they just have come to the place where they've said, listen, we know and we know and we know this and we know that and we know what he's saying. We just don't like it. I am making a choice of refusing to bow my will and my life before the king. And this just perfectly exposes the tension in every human heart for all time. It prompts us to examine our own lives and ask the question, am I, subs- am I submitting to this king of authority or am I rebelling against him? Have I come and given my life to the king in salvation? Am I continuing to grow in what it looks like for King Jesus to rule and reign on the throne of your heart? Or am I rebelling against him? And that's why Jesus then immediately sprints right into this parable. The parable that Jesus teaches right on the heels of this conversation, it reveals that how you or I or anyone wrestles with this question is just no small matter of submitting to the king. It's not a small matter. It's not a question to be brushed off. It's not a question to be easily dismissed. Why? Because of the verdict that Jesus gives as the teaching point of the parable. And what's the verdict? It's namely this, that the cost of rejecting Jesus is God's just judgment. That's the verdict. It's little treasure number three. The cost of rejecting Jesus is God's just judgment. Now that phrase right there, I think it's on the screen. There you go. The cost of rejecting Jesus is God's just judgment. What you need to know is that, that sentence, that thought right there makes many of us and probably is making many of us here in this room right now extremely uncomfortable. Extremely uncomfortable. Why? Well, any number of us, we love to talk about the love of God. We love to talk about the kindness of God. Because it is easy to love the lovely attributes of God, yeah? It's easy to love the grace of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God, the long-suffering of God, the patience of God. But when we talk about the severity of God, and we talk about God being the just judge of all the world, the earth, He will do right, it just it lands on us. We tend to squirm in our seats because it is harder to love what we think to be the unlovely attributes of God. If you go into work and you just poll your coworkers tomorrow and say, here's a list of probably what people will think are lovely. Here's the list of attributes that might be unlovely. Just put them all there and say, hey, can you cipher these out into two categories? Here's 10 attributes. You got two categories. You pick, choose your own adventure file these attributes of God under the category of lovely or unlovely. Most people are going to say grace, mercy, love, kindness, patience, lovely, and then they're going to go, ooh, judgment, severity, wrath. These things are going to be siphoned and categorized under the unlovely. But here's the thing. The Scripture tells us that what makes our God so lovely is that He is both kind and severe. That he is the God of love and the God of just judgment. That he will not look on sin and he will not look on rejection and he will not look on rebellion and be like, ah, you win some, you lose some. He will do right always. And in the parable, this is exactly what Jesus is bringing before the people, the crowd, the religious leaders. Jesus uses this parable to teach that in his kindness, God is patient in his pursuit of sinners. God is kind. If you notice in the parable, when the owner of the vineyard kept sending servants to the tenant farmers, in the parable, this represents how God the Father kept sending his prophets to call Israel and her leaders to repentance. This patient pursuit of sinners is God's kindness on display. So God has sent and since and since and acted and acted and acted in ways, long-suffering, patient, kind ways, over and over and over again with His people down through the centuries, plural. But notice that God's kindness didn't just stop with the sending of the prophets. In the parable, Jesus uses the owner of the vineyard sending His beloved Son to talk about how God the Father has now sent His Son right there, manifest, flesh and bone in front of these people. And God's kindness continued and found its fullest expression in the sending of His his Son, the Son of God, Christ Jesus. 
And so when Jesus tells us in the parable how the owner of the vineyard sent his beloved son, we're to have no doubt that this represents Jesus, the beloved son of God sent by the Father. You see, the kindness of God has a purpose in our lives. And according to Romans 2, verse 4, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. His long-suffering with you is meant to lead you to repentance. Over 19 and a half chapters, the religious leaders had been met with God's kindness over and over and over again. But as we notice in the parable and as we notice often in everyday life, many will see God's beloved Son and still reject Him wanting nothing to do with him. And this drives Jesus to then ask the question of questions in the parable, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? In other words, listen, how will God the Father respond when sustained resistance becomes solid rejection. When people continue to say, I don't want Jesus here. I resist Jesus here. I reject Jesus here. I don't want Jesus here. I resist Jesus here. I reject Jesus here. Sustained resistance will eventually become solid rejection. And Jesus is asking the question, how will God the Father respond to someone in this place? The answer is in verse 16. Come, destroy, and give. He will come, and He will destroy, and He will give. It's here that Jesus shifts from the kindness of God to the severity of God. And it is a stark shift. It's stark, man. If you're a topical preacher, you don't drift to these verses because who wants to get up and talk about the severity of God? It's not like I woke up this morning like salivating, oh, baby. Get to lay some wrath and severity on the people today. Come on, you know, like I'm just, like I don't drift there naturally, but Jesus took us here. Why? Because he's kind. See, when Jesus shifts from the kindness of God in his patient, long-suffering pursuit of sinners, please repent, come, here's more evidence, here's an understanding, I'm helping you gain, I'm helping you learn, I'm helping you grow, I'm listen, oh, I'm, I'm opening, I see, look, notice how people are presenting Christ to you, hear the call of the preacher on Sunday morning, hear what your friends are saying in community group, all these sorts of things, whatever it might be, this is the kindness of God, like literal flesh blood manifest in your life. And Jesus says, now I need you to also know this, that if sustained resistance turns into solid rejection, that there will come a time when patience turns into severity. In this moment, when Jesus makes this shift, please hear me clearly, Jesus is not being vindictive. Jesus is not being malicious. Jesus is not threatening right now. He's not veiny-necked and red-faced and spit blowing out of his mouth, five fingers shoving him into someone's chest saying, you right here, you better get your act together because if not, God's going to get... He's not doing that. Remember, Jesus just wept. for the rejection of many and born out of a heart that weeps for those who reject Jesus is saying listen you just need to know if you continue down this road it is going to go to a place you do not want to go it's just going to go to a place where the severity of God will come in this moment what is Jesus doing he's actually doing what love does Jesus highlights the severity of God because the absolute kindest thing he can do to these religious leaders who are digging in their heels against God is he is warning them that God will judge those who ultimately reject his son. And so the kindest thing that Jesus could ever possibly do in this moment is to say, I love you enough to let you know that if you don't repent 
and cast yourself on me. This is a path that does have an end, and it is an end you do not want. And that same invitation is just here for you and me and the people you have conversations with about Jesus. There is tremendous, tremendous eternal cost in rejecting Jesus. That's what this parable is teaching us. But there is also something very kind in this parable. Why? Because there is mercy in the severity. There's mercy in the severity. This parable is an invitation for any and all to come and collapse into Jesus. The alternative is ruinous. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. Maybe there's a friend in your life who needs to hear this. But my hope is that however God is working and moving in your life, that you walk in obedience to the King. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for speaking. Thank you for speaking clearly. Thank you for loving us enough to not pull any punches with us. Thank you for loving us enough to not dilly-dally and waste our time, but to just call a spade a spade. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your love that leads you to tell us the truth about what rejection of you actually is. Lord, if someone here is just flirting on that edge of just sustained resistance, assuming that sustained resistance will just have, you know, no overly negative effects in our lives, Lord, that you would just by your spirit help them to see that's just a lie from hell. If there's someone in our life that needs to hear these things, Lord, would you crank up our compassion so that we would just care enough to go to them? And just ask them, has anyone ever talked to you about Jesus? Is there anything I can pray about for you? And just trust that this will open up a door of conversation so that we can share and show the kindness of the King who made peace with God available for any sinner who repents and believes. Would you, would you help us to see these things? Holy Spirit, would you take a truth, singular truth? I'm not asking that we bombarded with a thousand things today, but Lord... Spirit, would you come and just singularly dial in a truth that we just need to wrestle with and just make it clamp down on our heart and our mind so that we just wrestle with these things with you this week, casting ourselves on you and your ability to grow us and mature us to look more and more like this King of Peace. Jesus, it's in your name that I pray these things. Amen.